So my guest today is Mohamed Al-Karishi. Mohamed is an assistant professor in the Department of Systems Biology at Columbia University. His lab works at the intersection of machine learning, biophysics, and systems biology. They have a particular interest in developing machine learning models for predicting protein structure and function, predicting protein ligand interactions, and learning novel representations of proteins. Mohamed, it's great to have you on today. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with the vision of your lab. So you state on your website, um, our goal is to simulate in a bottom-up fashion by 2050, a simple metazoan cell with sufficient fidelity such that any experimentally measured cell biological quantity can be predicted in silico with comparable accuracy. So I was hoping you could walk me through why this is your specific vision uh, for your lab to begin with. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I partly state that in that vision statement, which is that, you know, to me, this is more of a North Star, right? It's, it's something that, that I think um, acts as a way to sort of organized our, our research agenda, right? Because I think there are multiple things that have to fall into place to be able to do cell simulations, um, all of which I think are, are valuable. And I think they would teach us something about, about biology and about how cells generally work. You know, there's this notion that you really don't understand something until you've built it. And so, and so, so to me, it's, it's, it's a worthwhile goal to have sort of a long-term goal for these reasons, because I think it's a good way to sort of um, prioritize research, I suppose. In terms of it's kind of like the specifics there, um, you know, I, I say it should be able to allow you to sort of recapitulate any kind of experimentally measurable, observable, cell biological observable. And I, and I say that because I think it's, it's meaningful to have some standard as to what a simulation is. Uh, because it's sort of it, it's a bit of an ill-defined concept in a way, and you know, do you want to simulate things so that every atom is in the right place? Probably not, right? But then you could have things that are very, very coarse-grained, very abstract that might not really connect to the biology. Uh, so I, I, I place that qualifier there because I think it's meaningful to sort of put some standard as to what one is trying to achieve. Um, and then metazoan, because I actually think prokaryotic cells, even simple eukaryotes, may maybe maybe they're you know we may be able to get there more quickly. Than that, than that targets, and 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 it seems to me that you know something like a blood cell, a human blood cell, fairly simple, but at the same time, I mean, simple, but it's internally simple, but has potential utility for many for many things, including you know therapeutic applications. Uh, is sort of, it is is in one version of this idea, right? So it's trying to get get to a simple sort of metazoan cell. So, so that that's partly why I'm I'm targeting that as as opposed to say like E. coli or something like that. Sure. Right. So you also state that um, it's important that we develop the right abstractions to kind of tackle this this problem. Um, why specifically do you think we need abstractions to reach this goal? I think in some well, there's probably two reasons. I think on some fundamental level, right, if you want to simply brute force your way through it, meaning you, you just want to use a sort of a physical simulation to try to get down all the way to the atoms in, and from there up to the up the cell. Uh, computationally, I suspect that's going to be fairly intractable. I think for that for that time frame, most likely. So I don't think in, in 30 years from now we'd be able to actually simulate a metazoan cell at that level of resolution. So so one is a practical reason, right? It's just very hard to to do so. And, and so so abstractions would help you here because abstractions allow you to essentially uh, maybe simpi simplify the level at which you are describing your system. And so so sort of it's a computational trick, a, a simplest level to, to get around this problem of of intractability. But I also think there's sort of more maybe of scientific reason for it in, in the sense that uh, at least science as we know it today is really about gaining understanding of a given system, right? G gaining some sort of model or extracting some sort of summary of that system that allows us to reason about it in a way that we couldn't do before. And, and so abstractions help you there, right? Because if you, if, even if you are able to simulate every single atom in a cell, 
if, if that's all you could do, then that's essentially kind of akin to running an experiment, right? A, 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 you know, a physical experiment. Um, so it seems to me that the kind of the, the value of theory here and the, the value of abstraction is that it allows you to reason and think about these systems in a way which sort of distills them to their essence and gives you new insights that you wouldn't necessarily have just by running a sort of a black box experiment. Right, makes total sense. So like what major conceptual leaps have been made in terms of building useful abstractions in maybe the past 10 or 20 years? I mean, I would say probably the biggest thing in the space that's happened over that time frame is this whole idea of systems biology, right? The idea that we're going to, we're going to be able to import abstractions from control theory, from electrical engineering, computer science, dynamical systems, you know, from, from you know, math, mathematical methods and physics essentially, and, and bring these to bear uh, onto the question of modeling how biological systems work, right? So that's probably, I would say, kind of the very high level has been kind of the, the key idea, the key shift that's happened over the last 20 years. Um, I, I certainly don't think it's enough, and I don't think we're, we're by any means sort of there in terms of having the right toolkits for abstraction. I think what is particularly interesting right now, especially with the sort of the um, kind of dramatic explosion of machine learning and, and, and its impact on in, in, in biology, is to begin to think about you know, how can we sort of live up to that promise that systems biology had, you know, as long as 20 years ago now, uh, in terms of being able to kind of quantitatively model biological systems, uh, but, but do so in a way that, that sort of that works and that's robust and, and so on, because th that initial vision hasn't really, I think, panned out, not yet, uh, for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, and so I think kind of one of the key outstanding questions today is, you know, can, can machine learning, can molecular biology, can some of these things allow us to sort of bridge the, the gaps that, that are there for systems biology to make it actually a sort of meet its, its vision, its original vision. So um, kind of going back to the original vision, how does protein folding, which is, you know, a major emphasis of your lab, how does that play into reaching uh, the, this, this goal? Yeah, so I actually think it's very related to what I just said. So, so from my perspective, when I first started thinking about biology, what attracted me to protein folding and, and, and structure in general is that it seemed to me like it's some, some version of a lingua franca in which essentially all biological abstractions can be grounded um, in, in the sense that sort of anything that happens in the cell certainly is ultimately a consequence of some sort of molecular interaction be it between proteins or proteins and nucleic acids or lipids or carbohydrates. Um, and so it seemed to me that if we are to try to ground biology in, in sort of a firm, a firm grounding, a quantitative grounding, uh, that's going to take the, the, sh the shape of, of, of structure, the shape of, of molecular surfaces. And, and so, so that's what attracted me to protein folding in the first place, because that was sort of one of the key, you know, proteins are obviously are arguably the, the kind of structurally richest macromolecules and cells. And so um, that, that, that sort of attacked me to that problem. And, and, and since then, I think, you know, going back to what you just said, I, I do think this question of how do we go from the kind of the vision of systems biology, the aspirational vision that we had for decades to really, to really having a sort of manifest in a, in a practical way, I, I suspect structure is going to be a key part of enabling that, that kind of leap. So getting now more to the details of protein structure prediction, um, I was wondering if you could kind of get into the details of what it means for a prediction model to be end-to-end -end differentiable and why that's maybe an important feature to have in, in to predict protein structure. So, so for this, it helps to step back a little bit to, to say where machine learning and deep learning was or pre-deep learning, let's say in you know, 2010, something like that, 10 years ago, just over that. Um, at, at the time, if you were to look at things, for example, like natural language processing or computer vision, maybe even more so, what you'd often find is that it's, it, you'd often find these very complex human engineered systems 
comprised of multiple components, each of which is essentially engineered independently of every other component. Um, and so the behavior of any particular piece might be sort of optimized in a data-driven way where you give it a bunch of data to learn from, but that piece is sort of trained or, or optimized independently from every other piece. And, and there's a lot of human engineering involved in all of this. What I think fundamentally deep learning has done, I mean, it's done a few things, but I think one, one key thing it's done is sort of replace those, type, those types of disparate, separately optimized components um, with systems that are end-to-end -end differential, meaning that they are comprised of components um, which are independently sort of differentiable in the sense of like, you know, your, your high school calculus, you could, you could differentiate them. And what that means is that you could sort of string them together so that whatever, whatever sort of output you're trying to, to achieve, given some sort of input, that mapping from beginning to end, that's the end to end part, can be, can be essentially optimized in one full swoop because they could, they're all just compositions of differentiable functions. And, and that I think perhaps more than any other thing is really is what's allowed sort of deep learning to, to have as much of an impact as, as it's had over the last decade. New and Lutris obviously have an equally, if not larger uh, part to play in this, but, but, but they are differentiable functions. So they, they fall into that general category. Uh, so coming back to protein folding and wh why, why that's useful here is because very, you know, very similar to this, up to two years ago or so, the way that protein folding systems were built um, was very similar to computer vision 10 years ago, right? These complex components, human engineered, and all independently optimized. Um, and what end-to-end -end differentiability gets you is a way to go from sequence to structure. Um, it, it gives you a system which can be optimized to go directly from sequence to structure. So it allows you to essentially tune all the various components in one full swoop. Um, and, and, and what that I think allows you to do is be much more data efficient, be able to learn more from less data. And, and that, that's really sort of the, the promise, I think. So when we look at these end-to-end, um, you know, deep learning um, models, whether it's the one you developed or, you know, AlphaFold 2s, what are they fundamentally learning? Are they, you know, somehow encoding the underlying physics or are they coding some higher order abstractions? Uh, what do you think that may look like if you had a guess, maybe? It's a little bit challenging to, to, to say because I think we don't have, well, we still haven't spent the time to look into these. To, to look inside these systems and try to understand what they what they did, and I, that's that's true for the system I've developed, and, and I suspect it's probably generally true for what DeepMind has done as well. Um, that does that doesn't mean it can't be done, but but I, but I think it just hasn't really been done. Um, but I will speculate a little bit. So so I'll speculate a bit on Offfall too, because because there I think there may be several things happening. Um, so there's a component in Offfall two which is essentially mapping sequences or collections of sequences or fragments of sequences, let's say, to something like structural elements, uh, something like the way they do it is these sort of contact maps or, or distance maps that essentially tell you how far apart are any given two atoms in, in, that, in that given segment. Um, and I suspect at that level, it's really very much kind of pattern matching. It's very similar to the computer vision thing where you, where you essentially see recurrent, recurrent sequences or recurrent patterns of sequences and those map to, or those have high, high tendency, let's say, to associate with certain structural motifs. And of course there's, there's context sensitivity so maybe a fragment, you know, sequence fragment in one particular sequence context or one particular domain is going to look different than in a different domain. And presumably these models are smart enough to be able to sort of learn that context. And I suspect this part is also true of the system I had developed a couple of years ago, where essentially a kind of sequence structure uh, pattern recognizer. With AlphaFold 2 though, there is this other component, which is essentially taking that initial kind of prediction and then feeding it through uh, sort of an iterative refinement stage 
that that seems to improve the, the quality of the structure. Now we don't quite yet know what that component has access to in terms of this in terms of this predicted structure. Um, but hypothetically, just just let's for a moment assume that um, the only thing it has access to are just the atomic coordinates. Um, and so, so what this thing is essentially operate, so it forgets about all the sequence structure patterns that's seen before. And the only things presented with are just this atomic cloud and then essentially kind of iterating and, and, and refining that to get to the final three-dimensional structure. If it is doing that, then it may in fact be learning something physical in this process uh, because it's sort of that, that portion would essentially act as a funnel where um, in irrespective of what you've seen before in terms of these sequence patterns, you've gotten to a point now where you're essentially just given the structure and you're tasked with, with making it better. And so, and so that, that is a sort of a funnel in which I think physical principles could begin to emerge uh, in a way. And so, so even though it's not, I mean, as far as we know, it's not explicitly parameterized as a physical energy function, um, it, it may still be sort of learning implicit physics um, in, in, in that way. It's worth mentioning here, just as an aside, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago, right, right, right after my paper came out in, in this space, uh, called uh, something like Learning a Differentiable Simulator of Protein Structure or something like that by John Ingham and colleagues. And um, that paper actually has sort of an explicit energy model. So it's sort of trying to be explicitly physical about the way that the folding process happens. Um, and so that's another way of doing it in a way where, you, where instead of hoping that, a, that a, a neural network say will learn something physical, you can essentially kind of parameterize um, your, your model to, to really look like a physical energy model. Um, the, 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 the drawback there is that you might overdo it in the sense that you may assume certain things that are not necessarily say true. And so you, you have the same kind of drawbacks that you, yeah, you did with, with, with physical models like Rosetta or Charm or Amber, uh, but, but that, is, that is an alternative path. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as you know, protein structure prediction models are generally trained to predict crystal structures. I was wondering if, you know, are people working on methods to predict other regions in conforma conformational space, you know, states that are not necessarily the lowest energy structure? I, I think people are certainly thinking about it. I, I've seen grant proposals in, in the general space. So, so I think people are very much want to do this. Um, but it's a bit challenging, right? Because, and it's certainly we're interested in this space as well, but it's a bit challenging because when there's less data. Um, so, so it's sort of hard to know what the ground truth is. Um, and two, the, the formulation of, of whatever, you, whatever you sort of set up your system to be is going to have to be necessarily much more probabilistic and it really has to represent a much more complicated object, right? You know, in some ways what all the existing systems do is sort of predict a point estimate of that one lowest energy state. While this would presumably have to predict something more like the energy landscape, which, which, is, which is inherently more challenging. Uh, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, I think we have a lot more data coming out of uh, certainly like cryo-electron uh, microscopy. So that's 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 data that's inherently much more sort of ensemble-like, where you don't just have really single particles, but you have you have a whole ensemble of particles. Um, and, and potentially one can imagine augmenting this with molecular dynamics, and, and even maybe taking this idea of, of sort of physics physics inspired or physics grounded machine learning much more seriously, and and try to use physical models of, of proteins as strong priors in terms of what, what these energy landscapes might look like. So that, that, could, that could potentially be an interesting way forward. And so I, I, I am quite optimistic about where things are going to move in the next few years, but, but yeah, it's still a challenging problem. So, I mean, we're talking about structure a lot, um, but I was wondering, do you think structure in a sense is maybe a little overrated, right? The general dogma that you learn is that, you know, if you have the structure, you can infer the function. Do you think that's maybe too reductionist? Are there other things that, you know, are you know, really important in terms of thinking about you think? 
Right. So it's, I, I actually think it's hard to say, and I think it's a bit of a, I, mean, I think it's an interesting question to test, right? And I, th I think in some ways, one of the things we want to do, and I think a lot of people will probably be interested in doing over the next few years, is in fact try to test that hypothesis, right? Because historically we couldn't in, in a way test it because we just didn't have enough structures. And so it's hard to actually say whether, there's sort of two questions here, right? You know, does structure determine function in some sort of meaningful way? And, and two, um, how, much, how much of the variability between, between say structural variants of the same protein family really determine uh, variation in function? Another way of stating this is, is in a way, how much more information does structure give you over a sequence? Uh, does, it, does it add anything over just having the sequence itself and can you just go from sequence to function directly? Um, the, the, so the, the obvious sort of answer to your question would be, you know, we don't know and, 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 and probably not because dynamics plays a big role, right? Um, and that's almost certainly the case. Uh, and it's almost certainly the case that if one would sort of naively take structure and try to directly infer from that function, it, it's probably not enough, no. But what we've also seen, however, particularly in like in the context of say protein protein interaction modeling, is that even the structure may not, you know, the single static structure of lowest energy state might not encode, say, the interaction surface that will participate in a protein protein interaction on a, on a sort of information level. It still encodes enough information about, say, you know, the possible kind of deformations of that surface uh, to, to participate in various kind of induced fit interactions that, that in, in a sort of purely kind of learning based pattern recognition sort of approach one may still be able to say predict function or predict, um, yeah, for example, a protein-protein interaction based on the static structure, not because the static structure is, is directly what's actually involved in that interaction, but because it's sort of a, a good enough proxy of what you need to get at. And so this is part of why I say, I don't think we really know yet. Uh, and, I, and I think it's going to be a very interesting question to test. So, um, you know, sort of along those lines, I was also wondering, um, you know, are there people working on methods to predict where in the cell a given protein is is located? And, you know, maybe how difficult of a problem would that be compared to maybe the protein folding problem in terms of scope? Yeah, people have certainly been working on this. And I mean, I think there were papers probably dating from 2015, probably, I think something like that, where people were using uh, like a current neural networks, LSTMs, things like that, to try to predict subcellular localization. So, so I think the answer here there's probably like, an, like a, what I would say is sort of a, a boring version and an exciting version of this question. So I think the somewhat boring version, which I think people have been trying to do for a while is to say, all right, uh, you know, we have some data on subcellular localization. It's going to be very kind of coarse. Again, so like roughly in this pole or whatever, or this organelle. And then we're going to try to predict some sort of discrete quantity, some discrete classification of, of where, the, where this given protein is going to be in, in the cell based, based, on, based on this sort of formulation. Uh, and the reason why I say it's a bit boring is because it's sort of not really making use of structure. It's, it's sort of, it's a very kind of categorical uh, black white. You know, it, it, I don't think, I don't think it fully captures the richness of a cell. Um, a, a more advanced version of this, and I think that kind of connects to this whole idea of cell simulation. is to really try to say, okay, well, if I'm going to take structure very seriously, you know, can I actually, can I almost induce or reverse engineer the kind of structural architecture of a cell? based on what I know about all the various proteins there and obviously other things like, like cell membranes and so on. So, so it's almost like saying, can I, can I get at subcellular, can I get at localization at a subcellular resolution that's even higher than what experiments can give me based strictly on, based strictly on structural considerations, right? Almost like, this is almost like the first stage of cell simulator where I'm, I'm just 
trying to cover something like a single snapshot of the cell, of the structure of a cell, based on all the various structural pieces that, that I know are in it, right? Um, I think we're far away, and it's not clear how one, how one formulates it. What I just said is slightly ill-defined, I think. But I think that is a, an interesting frontier, is, is trying to think about sort of a much more kind of bottom-up way to do this, as opposed to kind of what I call boring, which is, you know, take data, experimental data on, on you know, uh, on localization and just like train a, a soft max on top, something like this. Cool. So, you know, last couple of questions to, to wind down the podcast. Um, you know, so computer science people, you know, they like to make a lot of parallels between biology and programming. And there certainly are a lot of parallels. Um, however, what do you think are the downfalls of taking a strictly programmatic view of the cell? Oh, many. It's, 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 a, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question. I, mean, I think that there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, positives as well, but but it is a dangerous anal analogy, um, and it's one that I've made myself. You know, coming into this field, I was very excited by it in a way. So a few things, maybe two things, really kind of come to mind right now as being particularly problematic. One is, you know, essentially all the programs we we used to were designed by people, right? Now that's not necessarily kind of an inherent feature of programming languages, and you can have you know like genetic programs, right? Essentially evolve, so it's, it's certainly possible. But at least the artifacts that we're, we're commonly used to when we think of programs were designed, were very much engineered, um, and so they have certain properties that are kind of very nice, right? Or maybe chief among them is that they're meant to be well, the code is well written at least, meant to be understood by other people, right? Uh, none of that applies to biological systems. Right? They're just much more organically, you know, they've evolved, right? and they're just very messy. Um, so, so even if one thinks that sort of evolution is, is, is in some abstract sense trying to like program a cell, which, which may not be entirely crazy, um, it's, it's doing so in a way that's very, very different than what we kind of commonly used to as, as far as computer programs. And so, so that's a really important sort of, uh, I think, gap between the two. The, the, other, the other one, the other yeah, difference, which I think is a bit more subtle, and I, I don't necessarily think it's true of all programming languages, but I think certainly true of some, at least. I mean, I mean the, the, the mismatch is that biology is much more like, a, it's almost like an operating system in, in the sense that you have, or at least a, you know, a program running in, in, in sort of runtime, because you have essentially sort of objects that are, that are, that are there, right, that have been sort of instantiated, and, and they have the various properties and they sort of interact with other objects. Um, so, so it's sort of less like kind of static code and more like an active, you know, more, more like an active program on a computer chip that's actually running, right? Um, and and there's, there's a, a lot more of an element of sort of independence to each of those components, right? It, it's, it isn't like you have this sort of, you know, top-down, very, very engineered, very well-designed computer program. That's why it's more like an operating system. It's really more like an ecosystem of different proteins and cells and so on. They, they each have their own almost like volition. And, and it's, it's the emergence uh, of, of those interactions that gives you the, the ultimate behavior. That's, that's again, quite different than how we typically engineer computer programs. I think some programming paradigms are closer to this idea than others. So I, I don't think it's a, it's a terrible fit you know, across the board, but one has to be much more careful with analogy, I would say, than, than sort of like naively maybe is, is assumed. So my last question is kind of more of an, an advice question. Um, you know, so I wanted to ask for those in STEM fields, not directly connected to biology, like, you know, physics, computer science, math. Why do you think such individuals could find biology interesting? And also, why do you think such people could make interesting and maybe novel contributions to the field? Sure. So the, the, I'll answer the, answer the second part first. I think um, 
biology is increasingly getting more quantitative. We're, we're increasingly swimming in data. And I would say our ability to acquire data uh, far surpasses our ability to understand it and analyze it. So, so if, if you're someone who, who has the skills to, to, to be able to build models or to analyze data in a quantitative way, to think about you know, abstractions, I think it's incredibly valuable because that is precisely the sort of thing that biology is currently uh, in, in need of, right? So that's why, that's why I think you know, people who are quantitative can help. Um, as to, as to why, why should they get into it in the first place, um, this, so this is, I'll say something which may be slightly specific to, to physics, uh, but you know, I have a sort of physicist friend and, and, and um, you know, he, he remarked recently actually with Alpha 2 results that, uh, you know, particularly at least in sort of high energy physics, you know, it's, it's been this kind of situation where the last 10 or 20 years, uh, th there's been this sort of dearth of, of, of sort of genuine breakthroughs, you know, seeing something which is, which is sort of genuinely kind of, um, one can, can pinpoint and say, ah, this is, this is a true advance. Um, I, I don't think that's the case at all in biology, right? And, and, and particularly he made that remark in response to the Alpha Fold 2 announcement, because here you have what I would argue was, was sort of a genuine advance, right? Um, all happened in, in the span of you know, essentially two years and it's absolutely incredible speed. So, so this is a field where, which is, you know, essentially getting rewritten as we speak. And in particular, I think at the intersection of, of the stuff we've been talking about, structural biology, systems biology, machine learning, the, I, I'm obviously biased, this is my research area, but I do think um, in 10 years, biology is going to look very different than what it does today. And, and that's going to be in large part uh, owing to the, to the evolution and revolutions that are happening in this particular space at that intersection that I just mentioned. And so, um, so, so I just think it's, it's, it's incredibly profound. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's going to change the world. So, so I, I, and, and maybe, I mean, I think machine learning on its own is incredibly uh, exciting as well, neuroscience as well. But, but I think of, of, of all the various sciences that exist today, I think this is one of the best, to, one of the best places to be. Excellent. Okay, Mohammed, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.